Okay, today my guest is Professor Günther Stahl. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Günther as a person. Professor Stahl is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Stahl is an academic fellow of the Center for International HRM at University of Cambridge, a fellow of Center for Global Workforce Strategy at Simon Fraser. He serves on the advisory boards of several non-for-profit and for-profit organizations, also is involved in consulting uh, a variety of industrial and professional services across the globe. His research has been published in leading academic journals and profiled in Wall Street Journal and Financial Times. He has received various prestigious awards, including the AOM Carolyn Dexter Award, the GIPS 2020 Decade Award, Sage Journal of Leadership Awards, AOM Best Paper in International Ethics, Social Responsibility and Sustainability Award. He is currently the Editor-in-Chief of International Management of Organizations and People, as well as Senior Editor of uh, Journal of World Business. Uh, thank you, Gunther, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Ilgats. Uh, I'm delighted to be part of this series. Thank you. So uh, first question, what did you want to become when you were a child? Oh, when I was very little, a preschool child, I, I guess it changed by the day. One day I wanted to be a firefighter, the next day a detective. And I recall, you know, there was even a time when I wanted to rob a bank. I thought that, that was the coolest <laughs> job. <laughs> so I was at a low level of cognitive moral development. I think I was four or five. But when I was a bit older, you know, an elementary school uh, kid, I wanted to become an... Um, um, archaeologist. So I was fascinated by the stories of uh, uh, Heinrich Schliemann, the famous German ar archaeologist, um, uh, discovery of Troy, uh, also the uh, discovery of uh, Pharaoh Tutankhamun's tomb in, in the Valley of Kings in Egypt. And, you know, I pressured my parents into going there and visiting you know, these sites with me. And I was also very interested in fossils, you know, uh, uh, looking, searching for fossils. So I spent many afternoons with my friends uh, digging for fossils in the hope to find a dinosaur egg. Of course, they never found one. <laughs> we found lots of other interesting stuff like a switchblade knife, even ammunition from World War II. You know, and I remember this very clearly because the mom of one of my friends called the police because she was afraid it would go off. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> fascinating. Uh, can you remember your first international trip? Well, it de depends on how you define international. I grew up in a, a tiny village in the Bavarian Alps, uh, so not far from Austria, and also Switzerland was not far. So my first international or cross-border trip was when my parents took my brother and me uh, to Austria for mountain hiking or shopping, but there was nothing international or foreign about it you know it's uh, the people looked uh, like uh, you're at home and and they even spoke the same dialect really the only thing that struck me at the time 
was that uh, in those days, uh, you know, uh, Germany and Austria had different currencies. So that was long before the European Monetary Union existed. And, and so one thing that really puzzled me as a kid was that, you know, why a chocolate bar that would cost one Deutsche Mark at home all of a sudden cost seven Austrian shilling. I thought that's outrageous, right? But that was the only thing that was really unusual. Uh, but, but my first truly, I would say, international or foreign um, experience was actually right across, around the corner, uh, a 10 minutes drive from my home country when my parents took um, us to the neighboring town where the, the American Special Forces were stationed. Right, and once a year they opened uh, the doors to the public, and there were all kinds of celebrations, uh, parachute jumping con uh, contest. And I remember this was really the first time as a little kid when I saw people of different color speaking a different language, uh, eating strange food. This is where I had my first root beer float. <laughs> And it really made a lasting impression on me, I have to say. And it also taught me an important le um, lesson, uh, although I didn't know it at the time, but a point that Rosalie Tan, you know, my co-author on uh, three papers always uh, makes in her papers, is that international diversity can be as significant as international diversity, right? So uh, across the board in Austria, er everything looked the same and just a 10 minutes drive from my hometown, you know, uh, there was this exotic place with interesting people uh, who spoke a different language, new food. Uh, so that was a lesson learned early in my childhood. True. Uh, about uh, how you got into academia and how you chose IB as a, a specific area? Why I chose IB, and especially an interesting question when I chose IB, I think it happened quite early in life. I was actually, this was a question that I was pondering some time ago when Mark Mendenhall and I and uh, two colleagues, uh, Mildred Zillinskate and uh, Rachel Clapp Smith embarked on a book project. And we decided that instead of, you know, writing one of those traditional introductory chapters that nobody wants to read, we do something different. We share with our readers how our personal life experiences shaped us as scholars, right? So the career that we have chosen, the topics we address in our uh, research. And for my three co-authors, it was early international exposure right, that really uh, had an impact, like Mark Menhall, for instance. Uh, he uh, grew up in New Zealand and lived in a multicultural community and then later his uh, parents repatriated to the United States. So he describes himself as a third culture kid uh, here. And then <laughs> later he went on a two-year uh, mission to Japan for his church. So uh, lots of intercultural experiences, international experiences. Now, in my case, you know, I was neither a third culture kid, nor did I grow up in a particularly uh, diverse in environment. Quite the opposite. You know, I grew up in the probably least diverse environment you can imagine, this tiny village in Upper Bavaria. But I think something that really had an impact on me was that when I was a kid, I was diagnosed what is now known as attention deficit disorder. Mm. And in those days, there were not many treatment uh, options or, or the, the existing options were quite primitive. So my 
basically the treatment that was pres uh, prescribed. I had to take two pills, you know, every day to sedate me. And uh, the, the doctor told my parents that uh, they should keep everything that could excite me away from me, like watching TV, hanging out with friends. So uh, after school, I had to stay at home. I was not permitted to leave the house for a very long half year uh, at the time. Uh, and, you know, this is when I became an avid reader. So uh, since I couldn't go out, except for very special, uh, special occasions, I really devoured books. So I remember one of my favorite books was The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. So I started daydreaming about, you know, uh, sailing along the Mississippi River and uh, read lots of, lots of books about explorers like into Africa or to a higher dust, Contiki, dreaming about other cultures. I think this is actually how it all started, how I became fascinated, you know, uh, about other cultures. And then if you allow me to tell the story to an end. So uh, after about half a year, my parents, you know, uh, basically uh, started questioning, you know, this treatment and uh, contacted another child uh, psychologist or psychiatrist and he prescribed something entirely different, took me off the pills and uh, recommended that I engage in outdoor sports. So I took tennis lessons <laughs> and quickly and then, uh, started to do uh, compete in yeah, competitive sports, tennis. And, you know, for much of my uh, teenage years, uh, I was traveling, you know, playing tournaments all over uh, Europe. Now, two knee injuries put an end to my tennis career, but this was really, for me, sports uh, became a way to escape, uh, you know, from the narrowness of this environment in which I grew up. And, and then, you know, after graduating from school, I went on to study in Japan and other countries and spend most of my career outside my native country. Interesting. Uh, if you can do it all over again, what's the second best career path for you? The second best? Well, actually, I mean, that sounds a bit like I'm right in the midst of my midlife crisis, my second or third one, but uh, I would like to live on, uh, you know, a vineyard farm and produce my own wine. You know, I'm a wine lover and have been for many, many years. Uh, I spend many of my holidays, you know, in, in the wine regions of the world, often organize wine tastings or participate in wine tastings. And I also, uh, you know, love the outdoors and, and enjoy manual work. So that's a distinct career possibility, it still is. Uh, actually, so I signed up for a sommelier's course later in the year that is part of an international certification program for sommeliers. So if everything goes according to plan, I, I will be a sommelier, certified sommelier in, in two years, and then, and then I take it from there. So for me, really, uh, the ideal idea of a late career would be to split my time between academia, you know, my current career, which I love, and producing wine. So let's see what happens. Perfect. Um, regrets. Have you got any regrets? Is it possible not to have any regrets in life? 
Well, maybe it is, you know, the famous American philosopher, uh, Brad Pitt, I think is his name, or maybe it was his, his spouse, Angela Jolie, said in one of the movies, there are no regrets, just lessons learned, right? Uh, but um, uh, I do have regrets, uh, of course, probably less in, you know, the professional domain uh, career. Uh, you know, I'm quite happy with what I have uh, achieved. I come from relatively humble background and, you know, basically have achieved more than I had imagined. Uh, but, but certainly in the personal, in my personal life, uh, I do have regrets. Uh, I mean, probably the most significant is that for many years, I didn't spend as much time, you know, uh, for my family, with my family, especially, you know, uh, when my daughter was still uh, little. Uh, we adopted our daughter when she was four from Cambodia, and this was a time when I was traveling constantly after I got my promotion at, at INSEAD. Uh, I remember my last three years at INSEAD, I was actually traveling more than 220 days per year, you know, doing lots of executive education, and I was based in Singapore, but also teaching in Fontainebleau. And so basically my wife had to, Dorit had to raise Hannah by herself. And, you know, thinking back, I, this is something that I deeply regret and, and would do differently if given the chance. And maybe this is also, you know, if you allow me to say that a piece of advice to uh, maybe younger scholars who are watching the video that, you know, no, no career success uh, no publication in a top-tier journal can compensate for lost time with the people you love. So uh, I think that's something to, to keep uh, in, in mind. Uh, of course, you know, pursuing an academic career requires commitment and, and focus and everything, but it's also important to uh, achieve a certain balance in, in life because an academic career, as you know, is not a 100 meter sprint, right? It's more like a marathon <laughs> that's important. I mean, you touched on a very important topic. And one of the guests in the past, uh, she said, uh, there's no such thing as work-life uh, balance in, in academia uh, because the first six, seven years before the tenure is uh, a treadmill, you know, you, you are running towards the end of the clock and uh, then you have to reinvent yourself. And then you have to, you know, prove yourself that you're still capable of doing certain things. So uh, she was quite a, a strong uh, a proponent of that this lack of work-life balance. And, you know, I, I talk to many people uh, in these interviews and some of them are very comfortable with a very relaxed and very successful and some people are on the opposite side of that uh, spectrum. Basically, they are saying, oh, you know, you have to give your 100% uh, all the time. I mean, uh, is it possible really to have this balance, work-life balance? Is it possible in the profession to have a great personal life, social life, family life, and also academic life? Is it possible? Well, I truly believe it is possible, but it's particularly difficult for academics because also, you know, for the many reasons that you mentioned, but also because we are so passionate about what we are doing. 
right? Uh, and, and I think that's another factor that, you know, for instance, I come in on weekends to get my research done, right? Uh, but it's not about getting tenure, you know, I haven't tenure for a long time. It's because this is something I'm passionate about. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's uh, later in my career, uh, I discovered how important it is to have a balanced life. And I think it's possible. Maybe we should, you know, also give more attention to this topic in educating junior faculty. Maybe a good topic for the next AOM meeting or AIB conference. Uh, about research, uh, say you're stranded in a small village, uh, there are people who don't read a, uh, AMJ, AMR, GIPS. How do you explain your research and why, is, uh, why your research is important, what, you, what your contributions are? Uh, how do you explain your research to people uh, on the street? Uh, well, if, if someone asked me this question, I would probably say that you know what i hope to do through my research but not only research also teaching and my other activities for example i'm director of the center for sustainability transformation and responsibility here at VU vienna and part of our mission is outreach so we are currently involved for example in the relief efforts for ukraine ukrainian refugees another Part of the mission is to promote uh, research on grand societal challenges. So what I would say is that I hope that, you know, through my activities, uh, however insignificant, small the contribution may be, to make a tiny contribution to yeah, making the world a better place and ensuring that your children, my children, you know, and, and other people's children have a sustainable uh, future on this planet. Now, of course, you know, th this invites the cynic in, in some people and or they might think, you know, this is really a lofty goal. Uh, we are international management scholars not trying to decipher the genome. So how can we through our work, uh, you know, have, uh, how can we make a difference? But uh, I firmly believe, you know, it's possible that we can do that. And this is actually why my research interests have shifted in recent years from more traditional IB research to all of my work is in the, at the intersection of sustainability, corporate responsibility, uh, and international business. For example, uh, the question uh, of how multinational enterprises through their activities can help tackle the pressing global challenges that we face, right? Uh, because obviously multinational companies have uh, a lot of potential to do harm, right? When we think about, for instance, uh, human rights violations in, in global supply chains, but they also have a huge potential to, to do good, right? They can be a force for good because they have, of course, the power and resources. Some multinationals uh, are more wealthy than many nation states. And, and they also have the capabilities really to help us tackle these pressing societal challenges. And when you think about it, uh, that's, you know, many of these challenges, like, you know, combating climate uh, change, you know, fighting poverty, reducing inequality, 
you know, dealing with, uh, de dealing with the influx of migrants in many countries. They have a very strong international and often also cross-cultural component. And I think as international management or international business calls, we are really uniquely positioned to, you know, sort of develop uh, better knowledge, uh, scientifically valid knowledge on how multinational corporations can tackle these challenges. Okay, uh, you mentioned uh, we're facing global challenges. I mean, we did go through a couple of uh, cycles over the past five years. What's the next five to 10 years of the IB fields uh, research going to be focused on? What, what, what's the, if you could look into your uh, uh, ball and make a prediction about the next uh, decade for okay. research topics, for junior faculty, for PhD students, what would those be? Next five years. Um, I mean, it's a bit related to what I just said. You know, uh, I think what we will see is a clear trend. You know, to um, to to uh, pursue research that addresses questions that are of greater relevance to society, uh, for sure. And we can already see that. I don't know if you attended last year's Academy of Management conference. There was really a mind-boggling number of symposia and PDWs and paper presentations on grand societal challenges and how to address them. I think this year's Academy of Management conference theme is how to create a better world together. Uh, and uh, there have been so many journal special issues recently uh, encouraging scholars to engage in more relevant and impactful work. The, for instance, the CHIPS uh, 50th anniversary special issue on how international business research can make uh, a difference. So I think that's a very, very clear trend, you know, that, uh, you know, we as international business scholars you know, uh, engage in work that uh, makes a real difference, uh, has a real impact beyond the narrow confines of academic um, research. And, you know, this is also, I think it's very encouraging, all these special issues, for example, because it shows that it is possible to, you know, produce work that is relevant and impactful and publish in the top academic journals of our field. And I think that's a fairly new, a uh, trend that started maybe five, six, seven years ago, and, and we will see much more of it in the future, I'm sure. Okay. How about uh, uh, omitted variables in IB research, things that we have uh, not talked about? I mean, you did mention uh, global challenges, grand societal challenges. You did mention sustainability. I'm going to give you those. But more specifically, what should we uh, think about more, study more? And uh, for, for the record, uh, in IB, most recent work is about soul searching. What is the field? Uh, you know, the soul searching of uh, our uh, potential, uh, where, where we are, where should we going? But more concrete uh, things for young scholars to work on, things that are omitted. Yeah, I, I think many of these discussions, soul-searching discussions are around how to make our work more impactful, but we already talked about that. But, but since you raised the issue of omitted variables, I'm not sure. 
I wouldn't call them omitted variables, but I think the role of context, you know, in international business research, I think is still underexplored uh, or underappreciated. It has improved, you know, over the past 20 years, there's certainly more attention to context, but the recent review of, uh, you know, work on the role of context in management, and I'm one of the authors, we are currently working on the, uh, this paper uh, for the new um, Academy of Management, Academy of Management collections. Um, uh, and, and what we found is that in many management subfields, uh, including uh, international management, you know, most studies are still undercontextualized or context is treated only as a control variable. E even international management, you would think that as a field is highly contextualized by its very nature, right? Because it looks at different geographies, right? And thus different uh, contexts. But, you know, even in Iberia, the research or international management research, most studies look at one type of context that's national differences and ignore all other types of, of, of context, for instance, you know, the historical context or the supranational context. Again, thinking about impact, you know, global governance mechanisms like the UN Sustainable Development Goals and, and their role. Um, and I think context is so important, especially in international business, because when you look at existing meta-analysis, for example, uh, all of them conclude that findings are very inconsistent, you know, often uh, contradictory and paradoxical. And very often when you start considering contextual variables, you know, the, the puzzle can be resolved and you can actually explain these inconsistent findings and you know, even uh, find that dramatic sign reversals occur, right? For example, uh, our meta-analysis, Martha Masneski and my meta-analysis that uh, won the CHIPS Decade Award, we found that, you know, under some conditions, diversity has a strong negative impact on team creativity and uh, under other circumstances, it can have a very strong positive effect. It all depends on the context and on how differences are managed. So I, I think there must should be more of it. Uh, and, um, and especially now junior scholars, they should think very carefully about, you know, what are the moderating influences they, they need to look at, context variables, also intervening process, then we're talking about the, the mediators, uh, and very often also the role of management-related factors uh, that, that affect outcomes. It was very important, and it was very insightful about how context is a, always a control uh, in many aspects of it. So there must be the composition of the controls and which is going to be the actual growth in the field. About advice and mentoring, uh, what's the most valuable lesson you learned uh, going through this process up to this point in your life? Well, <laughs> one lesson that I learned the hard way, we already talked about that is the importance, uh, I think of having a more balanced life and then getting your priorities right right we talked about that uh, in my personal experiences uh, but i think another important lessons you know for more junior colleagues uh, is 
Well, to be, and I mean, that's consistent with common wisdom, to be proactive, take charge, you know, of your career development and professional development. And, and also, you know, to get all the support that you can from more senior colleagues. And my experience is that, you know, junior faculty, they are often very reluctant to approach senior colleagues because they think they are so busy and preoccupied with other things and seek their help. And this is what I did when I joined INSEAD. You know, I was extremely reluctant to approach colleagues and, and ask for help. Uh, and as you know, at INSEAD, there are, for instance, many brilliant teachers, and I had so much to learn. And, but I realized very quickly that those who were less reluctant, you know, uh, they benefited hugely from the mentoring and the support that they got from senior colleagues. And in my case, I was very... Uh, very fortunate, you know, uh, two insert colleagues, or one of them was on sabbatical leave there, Paul Evans and Ingmar Bjorkman. They allowed me to sit in on their classes, use their teaching material. They were extremely generous and that helped a lot. So I, my advice would be, you know, be proactive. Don't wait for others to knock on your door and offer their help. Be proactive and you know, seek out mentors, you know, people who are strong on the research side. Uh, people who are master teachers, ask them for advice, ask, the, ask if you can use the teaching materials, right? Uh, and of course, also people, you know, who are very familiar with the organization, understand the internal politics, dynamics. All of this uh, is very important, I think, in academia. Uh, so be proactive. Gunther, for junior uh, faculty and PhD students, yes. These are great advice points. These are important points. About mid-career people after tenure, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenges for them? And what's the advice for mid-career colleagues? I mean, mid-career, you know, when I think back on my own career, for, for me, it was a pressing issue. How can I reinvent myself? You know, uh, so uh, when I started off as a junior faculty at INSEAD, it was about obviously tenure was, you know, the question about getting my promotion, what, what needs to be done. But once I had then the promotion to associate, you know, it was really more about what are something changed, you know, what are the topics that really excite me and, you know, uh, that uh, also for the next 10 years of my career that I want to engage in and how can I reinvent myself, you know? And also of course, issues related to work-life balance, you know, mid-career, uh, all of a sudden I was a father and you know, so my whole personal situation changed. And, and uh, around that time was when I decided uh, to, to have a career change, also, you know, change the, the, the institution, uh, go to a place that is a tiny bit maybe less challenging or where I would have a bit more time for, for family, for myself. So those kinds of questions, and, and uh, especially there, it's very, very useful, I think, to have a mentor, you know, someone uh, experienced who can give you advice. Uh. For the sake of time, what's the question that I should have asked you about Evans? Uh, well, the interview guide that you sent me some time ago was pretty comprehensive. Uh, so I didn't identify a gap. Uh, but, but, you know, maybe the one thing that you might add, you know, uh, 
most of the questions centered around research and, and scholars as mentors, also their personal, you know, life. Uh, but um, what, what you might want to add is, uh, you know, a certain focus also on teaching international business scholars as educators, because this is what most of us are getting paid for. Though know, uh, basically uh, delivering great teaching and, and many of us are passionate uh, about it, uh, but that would probably be too much to cover in a single interview, maybe for a new uh, Frontiers interview series focusing on educational issues. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to follow up on that one, actually. Uh, I mean, you have a lot of uh, teaching experience in different parts of the world, right? You're basically doing international management teaching in the Asian Pacific area and then Europe. And you've been to Turkey a couple of times. Uh, what's different? I mean, yes, everything is different, but what is different, really? Uh, how do you modify your teaching to fit the uh, needs and the students over different parts? You have to be attentive to cultural differences, you know, for obvious reasons. But I think the importance of culture and cultural difference in the classroom is also sometimes a bit exaggerated uh, because many of my students, for instance, they uh, you yeah, have been educated. So I just had uh, did a program, an executive MBA program in Oman, for example, right? And all of my students, you know, executives uh, were fluent in English. They spoke better English than I do, for sure. All of them. <laughs> uh, many of them have been educated in the, in the West. Now that doesn't mean that cultural differences don't don't matter, but you know, it's uh, and, and, you know, most of the, you know, topics that interested them and, and even, you know, teaching approaches work with, with them, you know, uh, early on in my career, for instance, I tried to adapt my teaching approach as much as possible, customize it to my audiences. Uh, so when I was in Japan, for instance, I avoided using role plays because I thought, you know, Japanese probably don't respond too well to that. Uh, now I don't do this anymore, right? Um, and uh, I don't do too much customization and, and it works. And I found that, you know, audiences all over the world enjoy, you know, if teachers have a more interactive approach, try to draw them uh, in um, and, um, and yeah, basically, um, treat them with respect and then also try to learn from them and, and their culture. Uh, so uh, my recommendation would be, you know, if you are asked to teach um, in a different cultural context, inform yourself, uh, but don't really adjust too much to your audience. It's not necessary. And, you know, my friend Martha Masnevsky, she said something uh, really uh, interesting. She said, cultural intelligence is not, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, but uh, when in Rome, act in a way that do not offend the Romans, right? Mm -hmm. So when you teach in a Middle Eastern context, 
uh, make sure that, you know, obviously religion is a deeply ingrained part of society and, and you have to be informed and respect that prayer times, etc. cetera, uh, and, and be sensitive if it's during Ramadan. Certain. Uh, but uh, that's about it. Otherwise, you know, uh, basically you can treat them, you know, like uh, Western audiences. This is no problem at all in my experience. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, uh, for your insight. I enjoyed it a lot. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with you. Thanks. Thank you so much, Elgatz. I enjoyed the conversation. Bye-bye.